Thanks for returning to check out episode number three of Back on the Grind podcast. Since we dropped our first two episodes, we got a bunch of awesome listener feedback. We're going to get to some of that in the upcoming episodes over the next couple of weeks. Today, though, I'm sitting down with longtime friend and rapper P.T. Burnham. Him and I have minds that kind of enjoy exploring similar territory. So we went on for a very long time. We talked for over three hours. It was difficult to narrow this down to a one hour or so conversation, but we did our best and it might seem a little disjointed at some points, but if you can stick around and and listen to what we get into, we talk about some amazing stuff. Burnham explains his understanding of intuition. We describe the process of quieting the mind in prison. We talk about the benefits of practicing compassion and taking responsibility. We talk about the value of reaching out to others, especially if you don't know them. And we talk about facing catastrophe and why people seem to pay attention when someone is going through a catastrophe. And we end on the topic of playing, laughing, and arguing relationships. Enjoy this episode as we bring you closer to P.T. Burnham. Burnham, welcome to the podcast. And I just got to say, I got to say thank you to you. I really appreciate your support and friendship. And specifically, I want to bring up my circumstances around incarceration. And I was preparing for my case. And I had asked for support and help from friends to help create something called a um, sentencing video, which for those who don't know, a sentencing video is basically a video that you create to tell your story and you can present that to the judge with the hopes that it could influence uh, them to better understand who you are and that could have a positive outcome on the sentence you receive. But I had reached out to you to see if you'd be willing to participate in that. And, you know, you live states away. And I remember it was at my father's house and I had invited a bunch of friends over that I wanted to participate in it. And others were there to support. Uh, Pat, formerly Pat the Bunny was there. Chesky was there. Mo Nichols was there. Ben Absurdo. So like a bunch of musician people. And then some of my kids were there and, and non-musician folks as well. And I just remember watching you ride up on your, your motorcycle up the driveway to my dad's. And I was just really grateful that you took the time to travel uh, and uh, show up it's, uh, for me in that way. So I want to say thank you. A, thank you. It's just a natural thing though. You know, it's like there's a deep history there where you're one of one of my intellectual heroes and just kind of like life heroes in terms of taking the reins and doing things. It's a natural thing. You're part of my story. You're part of my world. So Burnham, you and I talked before this about intuition. It's something I'm not fully comfortable understanding or leading that conversation, so to speak. And I know you've definitely had some interest and experiences with intuition. And I'm hoping you can kind of help me understand it a little better. So if you had to give me a definition and our listeners a definition. There is an intelligence that is beyond us that you can access. And in fact, that is constantly acting. It's constantly responding to its environment in innumerable subtle ways. It's the ability to basically quiet down other processes so that you can actually hear what this process is doing. It has a lot to do with what we call gut feeling. You know, I knew in my gut that was wrong, that I knew that I knew in my gut something was off about the situation. Stuff like that is not just some kind of like magic. I think this is the problem with intuition uh, and thoughts of like things like trusting your gut. Most people, when they think about it, they're like, it's a mysterious process, something extra scientific outside the realm of science. And then the scientist says, ah, yes, and that can't exist because everything's within the realm of science. We can understand it. all." The reality is that it is not outside the realm of science. What it is, is so subtle that scientists have been unable to measure it yet. There's always a feeling of science that we're right there on the cutting edge. We're measuring down to the smallest that it could be. Oh, oh we're making this advancement. And then we always find we can go small. And it is my assertion that the human entity is a very sensitive antenna. 
something vastly more sensitive than we've been generally led to accept, and that it is not a matter of becoming more sensitive if you want to receive these sensitive, intuitive vibrations. And so many people do it without ever thinking about it. I can abstract it and logic it, but I'm certainly not somebody who accesses it with this masterful, determined thing. It's I like um, teasing apart what it might mean. So intuition is gaining access to those systems in a way that's natural. And although we cannot logic it out, is inherently an ability of the human system. The human conscious system can tap into this sort of eternal understanding, which knows, I don't know if it knows everything in the way of knowing that we consider knowing, but it is vastly intelligent because if you follow it intentionally and intelligently, it's about subtle variations that that might take into account something even so subtle as your emotional state, as subtle as the emotional states of those around you. I think one of the things about stringed instruments is that the string is one of the most responsive things, subtly, delicately responsive, that is early available through gut, animal gut, human hair, but it is subtle in its responsiveness to human touch. The vibration changes, not just on like how hard you pluck it, but with which angles, whether you slide across it, whether you pull up on it, it's so responsive. And my muscles are also extremely responsive to my intuition and to my intelligence, um, my consciousness. Drives the muscles, which drives the string, which drives the air, which connects with you. We have to think about music as a physical touch in order to start thinking about the way that it moves from my mind, through my body, through the string, and then to you. This is a communication. It's the reason that we're having this conversation rather than just me writing a script and talking. Because the intuitive response between you and I will lead us to places that may be off topic, but will be exciting. These ideas that kind of got wiped out by mechanization, the drive towards industrialization, the drive towards the thinking mind saying, I want it all to be replicable. I think that comes from a drive of safety and dependability. It's very natural that one should want to drive towards that because safety and dependability is like really what we want so much. But it can be taken too far and applied to too many things where it denies the subtler realities of intuition, which is where I, I would argue where human joy lives. The joy comes from the understanding of something surprising oftentimes. Mm. A great book for all this stuff is uh, Hazrat Anayat Khan's The Mysticism of Sound and Music. The idea of, of sound as touch, the idea of um, the subtle pickups of the, of the human body. He writes a lot about that stuff. Um, and talks about how there is this connecting of the minds, connecting of the consciousnesses that is really only possible in small groups when there's like a united purpose and a feeling of this is what we're here for and the connection is very close. It's not really possible on a larger scale and the spectacle and the community vibe, the commune the communing that happens at very large festivals, very large places is absolutely real, absolutely valid, and totally something incredible. But there's another thing, a smaller thing, subtler, that is crushed to death in all of that stimuli that cannot be viewed by so many because when you pack the room in, there's something lost in all that packing. It's hard to describe, I guess, a little bit, but there are some feelings that are subtle, small, and too much stimuli, too much outside noise, that intuitive sensitivity comes with being present. The more present you are, the more you're receiving those signals consciously in a way that you can understand. You're always receiving them, but the more here you can be, the more present you can be, and, and quiet even, quiet in your mind. You can be in a loud environment, quiet in your mind to hear, which actually I would like to talk to you a little bit about quieting the mind. Because I know you learned a lot about that in prison. Mm -hmm. And that's a place where I think you, you either learn it or you... The experience of going to prison in the beginning, when you first get there, it seems to be a common thing. Your mind fills up with a lot of negative thoughts from your past. When I went to prison, I was in a relationship. I was in a relationship for, I don't know, 10 years or so at the time. I'm still in that relationship, but 
you know, we, we had this long-term relationship and then I go to prison and then I begin to think of all the ways I'm a failure in that relationship, how I'm not worthy in that relationship. <laughs> it's like my, my second day in prison and my thoughts are there. Not just that, but then like with my children, my relationship with them, relationship with friends, whatever it may be, you know, the work I've done over the years, there's something about being in the, in that place, the environment of a prison in the beginning that really brings to the forefront a lot of the negative things that you were holding on to, but perhaps not thinking about, you know, so often. Totally. So they, they come up and question, I guess, at that point is, what do you do when those thoughts come up? I think a lot of people, most people in there, from my experience, just push it away, push it back. And, you know, and you could often tell from their behavior that that's what they're doing. I mean, it, it causes a lot of anger, I think. When those thoughts are there yeah. and you push them back and, and that discomfort is always functioning in the back of your mind, you're functioning from a place of discomfort, you're going to get angry. I mean, who can be in that, you know, and we're already in an uncomfortable environment. So why physically? Absolutely. Yeah. And then you're adding the uncomfortable mental environment. So in regards to quieting the mind, I had to let those thoughts come up. I had to acknowledge that I have those thoughts. And then I literally begin to explore them basically one by one to say, Hey, is this thought true? What evidence is there to support this thought? Uh, some of uh, it I explored with my fiance Lee. I would write her and say, Hey, I'm having these thoughts. Some about our relationship and my role in it. You know, we would work them out together. And a lot of them I worked out, you know, on my own. And as you work th through those thoughts, they begin to dissipate. You don't hold on to them as much. So I had to clear out a lot of that stuff that rose to the surface. And like I said, there's something about the beginning of your prison sentence that just brings up a lot of that stuff. And through releasing that, I really begin to quiet the mind much more. I had trouble meditating in prison. Uh, well, obviously it's a difficult environment to meditate in, but once I started to actually find, for lack of a better word, success with meditation was after I released those thoughts. I was remembering when I was locked up and I was in my bunk and most of the other men weren't around in the unit. And this one guy, he had just gotten off the phone and came back over to his bunk, which was across from mine. And we had these lockers and I'm just laying in my bunk and I was in a, I was pretty new to that unit at the time. I didn't know this guy yet. I didn't really know anyone there. I'd been moved into a new unit. You could tell he was upset as he was walking over. And then he just starts punching the top of his locker, punching it and punching it. And the thing starts to bend and it's getting dense, you know, and then the, the metal bar across the top like flies off. And I'm like, this dude's a fucking asshole. Like that was my thought, you know, I'm just laying across my bunk and this dude's like freaking out. And I'm just like, this guy's a fucking asshole. I'm going to stay away from this guy, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until sometime later, I, I had uh, participated in several groups in there with small groups of men that we'd get together and kind of talk about things. Uh, I, I started two groups on my own. One was like a meditation group sanctioned by the prison. One was not sanctioned by the prison, we would just meet on like out on the yard and have a conversation. And this guy ended up coming to that group and there was probably like, I don't know, eight of us. And I had shared in there when I was a child, I dealt with sexual abuse and I had spoken openly about it before. It wasn't that difficult for me at the time to share it. I talked about it for years. I spoke about it openly in this group. We ended that day and then the, the following week when we met, that guy came back and he said, I, I want to share something with you guys. But he's like, it doesn't leave this fucking group. He kept saying it like he was scared that this information would get out. And he says, it goes nowhere. And then he went on to share how he was sexually abused as a child. And I just remember telling myself, thinking to myself, this guy's a fucking asshole. Like that's what came to my, I'm calling this guy a fucking asshole. And here he was for 30 some odd years, he's held that experience in, never shared it with anybody. And I'm not justifying his behavior, but when you hold something like that in for 30 years, of course you're going to freak out. Of course you're going to punch your locker to the point of destroying. I mean, that's a lot to hold on to for such a long period of time. It was just an interesting experience for me to realize just because someone's behaving in a, in a not healthy way or a not cool way, there's something behind that. 
and, and I'm not saying like this was a good person. I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But all I'm saying is he had an experience similar to me that he didn't get to deal with. I've been dealing with mine for a long time. He he never did. And I, I couldn't imagine what that must be like. I mean, you know, I still struggle with it from time to time, but the fact that I've been able to share it. And he, he ended up coming to me uh, a couple weeks later and like thanking me. It was actually, that, that happened twice in there, that, that same experience you know, with me sharing my story about abuse. And then, and it was just made me wonder too, though, like how many other men in there had that experience. You're really dealing with others the way that you deal with yourself. So by exercising, it can be practiced on both sides. As you practice compassion to yourself, you're more likely to practice compassion to others and vice versa. Because compassion is really mostly like a letting in. It enriches your life. There's more room for self understanding, which increases the ability for self-expression. There's more of a letting others in, which allows you to learn from them. Someone always has something to teach you. And someone is always an asshole. Which one of them you come into contact with is a function of moment of their mind and moment of your mind. Mm -hmm. Some people are more likely to be assholes. but Ultimately, everyone has these multiple sides to them, and you're going to encounter them on the level that you're most likely to be at, which for a lot of us, because of that whole experience that we all have of being kind of brutalized, is often a, a one of judgment and punishment. Yeah. Like, because judgment itself is a sort of a form of punishment. Mm -hmm. Like when we judge somebody, there's a little bit of that catharsis that you were talking about that happens when, you know, you're like, ah, oh, I wish, you know, it's easy to grab onto rage. It's easy to grab onto that and be like, yeah, he's an asshole. And like you say, he is being an asshole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you, let's say that he was your bunkmate and you had to live with him. It's like, he does this thing, he's an asshole, but he's also an abused human who like has this other side that's been abused and is like not as unsympathetic. And, you know, if you're telling the story in your head, it's like, I live with this real asshole. It's like, that's a miserable thing. If it's like, I lived with this person who had been abused and had behavioral problems and I was doing my best to feel compassionately towards them, this is a much better story. Much, much easier story to have been inside in your own head. It actually improves how you view your life. It's not just about being compassionate to others. It's about like gaining clarity and being able to really see. Like I said, I, I didn't know his story and I didn't know him when he was punching and attacking the locker. And, you know, my immediate response, like I said, was, well, this guy's an asshole. I'm going to stay away from him. And if I had held true to that, the experience, the revelation that he had of sharing what he'd been through for the first time after years might never have occurred in his life. And then for me, my experience in the prison setting was changed by that. I mean, I was able to be more, find more meaning in my time while I was incarcerated because of that, allowing that compassion to be there, which is hard because in the moment I didn't do it. In the moment I couldn't be compassionate when he was behaving like that. But thankfully as time went on, I was able to step away from that original thought of don't allow him into my experience at all, you know? And then actually I did. And, and, you know, thankfully uh, we were able to explore a difficult place, but a place that I, I would say needed to be explored. And it was beneficial for him and myself and the other men, I believe. Yes. And it being beneficial for him, anything that is taking rage levels down and increasing the amount of self-consideration that a person is doing if you can do that for a person, then you are also helping every single person that's in their sphere. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very exponential. And it's like, with rare exception, this is the way it starts. It starts at catching yourself. It takes days. You know, you're like that asshole. And then two days later, after you have some time to like the emotions cool down, there can be like a coming to this place. But I think that's the way that it starts. And then through the repetition of it, eventually the mind, through its actual drive towards efficiency, it actually is like, let's just cut out the middle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, let's just cut out all that time, like having to think about it, damn it. <laughs> like, just like, we'll just go straight to like, he's like a small child. I wonder what happened to him. 
like I'm a curious person. So like I take advantage of that where it's like, you know, ask yourself the question, like, I wonder what happened. What's the story? Like, this isn't just like an isolated, it's not just bashing this thing. Obviously it's not just because of what happened just now to him. There's some stories in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I'm, I always find myself curious as to what happened, which helps also just like a, a, a removal of guilt. I'm done with guilt on a personal level. Yeah. Like I'm not done with it. I'm, I'm still serving it up to myself in vast quantities, but I'm done being okay with that. It's like, nah, I am not to blame for anything, but there are things that I should be responsible for. And if I can be responsible for them and claim more things to be responsible for, then I'm obviously empowering myself. That's what responsibility means. You know, I'm if I'm responsible for it, mm -hmm. I don't want to keep just go on with this one guy, but you know, I'll say I, I came to later no, find out go. too, though, that when he got off the phone, I, his partner had just broken up with him. You know, that she had just left him. Prison, I call the relationship crusher. Most relationships fall apart in there. It is scary for me because I'm like trying to maintain my relationship in all around me, like. But you know, you mentioned responsibility, and I'm thinking of one other story in one of the groups that I was talking. You know, fatherhood came up a lot. I'm a father. And in prison, there was a lot of guys who were fathers. And that came up a lot. I'm big on responsibility. I think it's the cornerstone of finding more freedom. If you want to be more free in your life, if you want to be in a more free community, the more responsibility you take for yourself, the less you're going to rely on external authority. Because the responsibility you don't take is going to be taken by yeah. external authority. So I'm always very eager to take responsibility when I can. And we talked about fatherhood, like I was saying in there a lot. And we had this one group where uh, this guy, he was, he was a little younger than me. He had a son who he wasn't in communication with. He was no longer in relationship with the kid's mother. So he had no contact with the kid's mother. The kid's mother got rid of their Facebook. So he couldn't even reach out to like his friends or his own mom to reach out to her to figure out if he can somehow communicate with his kid. Mm. And I remember him being rather upset and saying, man, I wish I could communicate with my kid. Like, it's just all I want. And, you know, we didn't get into the details of the relationship. I'm sure it was pretty strained. I mean, any look, if you're in prison, your relationship with your, your child is going to be strained no matter what. As healthy as the relationship is, prison is going to put a lot of strain on it. So, I mean, outside of that, you know, right. from the way he spoke, I assume there was already complications before he even entered prison. We were talking about how all of us, you know, how to write our kids and what to say when we write them and, and basically how to father from prison. That's what we were talking about in the group. And he's saying, well, I can't do that. I don't have that option. And I remember feeling really bad for him, you know, and the group had ended. The next week we gathered back together. And then I said to him, you know, just write your kid. And he's like, I already told you, like, I don't have his address. I have no way to get his address. I can't reach out to the mother. And I said, write your kid a letter a week, every week, write the letter, keep it here with you. When you get out, give it to your kid. I said, right. I guarantee you, you can tell him when you get out, I wanted to write you. You can go say that. And he might feel touched by that, but you can hand him a stack of letters and say, Hey, I did write you right. every single week I was locked up. For me, when we talk about taking responsibility, that's one way to do it. Right? It's very easy to say, well, I don't have an option. I can't do this. But to find, you know what, say, no, actually, I'm responsible yes. for this. You know, and like, how do I do that? How do I do it? If I'm responsible as a father, how do I do this? Find the option. And there's a way. Taking responsibility creates more freedom. I mean, you know, and I can explain this practically. If I am struggling or suffering with something, like I said, in prison, there was things I wanted to share or talk about, but there was no outlet. Well, I decided to create a group where we could, right? I took responsibility for that, that need to share something. I started a group so I can share something with the group, right? Because just keeping it to myself wasn't working. Okay. So then I'm, I'm going through right. prison life day to day stuff is coming up. You know, my fiance's father died while I was locked up, which was a very difficult thing for me to be there and not support oh. her. Yeah. I, you know, and the fact that I had took responsibility to create a group like I did prior. So freedom is a choice. Freedom means choice, right? If you have freedom, you have choices. That's what the more choices you have, the more freedom you have. Well, I had a choice. I can yeah. go sit at my bunk alone 
or I can go get the group together and we can process this together. And, and the fact that I had those choices, sit alone in prison, which is what the prison offered me, or communicate with the group about what I was doing, all stems back from the responsibility I took to cre- create that group. And so the more responsibility you take, the more choices you're going to get and the more free you're going to feel. You know, I can give Absolutely. some other examples. And I, I wasn't even aware of this at the time, like what I was exactly doing. But prior to my incarceration, when I was fighting my case, uh, th- there came a point where I realized the government was like telling this story about me that had some truth to it, but it had a lot of falsehood to it. And even if they told it in a completely true way about, you know, the quote unquote crime I committed, even if they told it 100% truthfully, right. which they didn't, but even if they did, that's not the only story of who I am, right? There's much more to me than that. And I had decided to take the risk. I was hoping you would. Yes. Well, I, I know you appreciated this. You you and other people. And I think. Uh, I, I tell this story to people. I use it as an example. Yeah. But please go on. So I decided that I was going to take responsibility for this because I need to tell my story. Because if, if I don't take that responsibility upon myself, the prosecutor, you know, th- this government agent is going to tell the story in a way that I don't like. So I chose to take that responsibility. And some of the things I did was I decided to start doing some interviews. I, I interviewed on two different podcasts. I interviewed on two different YouTube channels. And those specifically at the time, I, I was just trying to tell my story. Like I said, I wanted to have it out there in a way that showed something different than what the government had to say. At the time, I had no idea what this was going to do. But now jump forward three years later, I'm sitting in a prison. Right. I come up with this idea. I want to start this coffee roasting company. Well, first I'm in prison. Like, what the hell can I do about that? Like, you know, it's like, well, okay. Same thing there. I I say, well, I'm going to take responsibility for this. One, I, you know, I reach out to my father. Can you send me trade magazines about coffee roasting? So they're coming in and I'm learning all this stuff, you know? So then I'm reading of all these coffee roasters in the magazines and I say to myself, you know what? I want to reach out to these people. I want to write to these people and ask them for information and, and advice about how to start this coffee roasting company when I get out. And as I said, I didn't notice at the time, but when I recorded those podcasts and those interviews prior to incarceration, when I wrote these people, I was able to say, hey, it might be weird getting a story from a guy in prison. You might have these thoughts of what a man in prison is like. You might be able to type in my name and read what the government says about me. But you know what? I have these stories. You can go see me on YouTube. You can see who I am and hear my story. You can listen to my story on these podcasts. Here's four places you can go. You know, I wrote 20 different coffee roasters around the country. 10 of them got back, which is amazing, right? I would say if I did not take responsibility to tell my story early on, I question if any of them would have written back. Maybe some would, but definitely not as many. And my point is the fact that I took that responsibility early on to tell my story led me to have more freedom when I was in prison to engage with other people outside of prison. And it's just another example of how taking responsibility, it gives you choices. Yes. I mean, if I didn't do any of that, it's like, well, how do I start a coffee company? I don't know. Like who would have been as willing to come back and, and talk to me, communicate with me? Right. It opened a lot of opportunities. People saw those videos are like, oh, he's just a regular guy. Right. He's not some threatening person like I would have thought of, you know, like the typical response to someone locked up, you know, which is, and I'll be honest, yes. most people that are in there, sure, there's threatening people in there. Most people I was around were not threatening people, but that's the image. Well, I mean, for my like short stint in the jail, it was just like, yeah, it was not this like monster pit that mm-hmm. they make it out to yeah. be. But there's, I mean, there's definitely not well-adjusted folks in there, for sure. And I'm sure, like in in something like a maximum security or something, like there's going to be different situations, different prisons. But I mean, I'm actually kind of shocked. Like it's just so obvious that the prison populations is skewed towards people of color, poor people, all this shit. Because I would really think that with as many people as are incarcerated at this point, everyone should know someone in prison. Like, I just don't know, like, how there's somebody who just nobody you know is in jail at all. But it is true. There's lots of people who don't know anyone in jail. 
but yeah, it's it's a very important thing to make that clear. And I think that that's one of the perfect ways to do it is to, um, especially if you're going to jail or even just just in general to be present and speak your mind in some fashions mm-hmm. and establish yourself, you know, in some way. This is about self-establishment in terms of, you know, making your voice heard. This this band Future Islands has this uh, this line that says it's in the song Castaway. It's like, don't cast away, don't cast away, don't let them cast a role for you. It's like, if you don't tell your story, someone else will tell mm-hmm. your story. Like, someone else will put you in their story. And I want to say, just to point out too, and I'm not simply saying that I did this on my own. I mean, obviously, as I said in the beginning of the interview, I reached out to you and other friends to help tell that story as well. I mean, that's another important piece of this is that uh, reaching out and asking for support was very important as well. I mean, I, I couldn't have done that as much as I'd done. I couldn't have done on my own. I mean, a lot of what so, I was able to accomplish came through strength and inspiration that I got from people like you and others who were also showing up to support. And when I reached out, we're like, I got you. Absolutely. That's one of the biggest things is asking, for, being able to ask for assistance. I feel like there's two things that stop us from asking for, not just two, but two of the major ones that I can think of. One is legitimate and the other one is not. Like there's a general fear of reaching out, period. People won't want to work with me. What do I know? What do I have to offer? Why would this person give me the time of day? You know, you were in prison and you could easily say to yourself, just stop it all flat by saying they will never respond to a guy in prison. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be an easy jump to make. Why would they do that? Why would they even, they'd probably think I'm scamming them, this, et cetera, et cetera. But that just needs to be gotten beyond. You need to like X that out. Reach out. When in doubt, reach out. Do it. But there's another thing that has stopped me sometimes, and I've been glad that it has given me pause, which is that you've got to know what to ask for. You've got to know what it is that you're looking for mm-hmm. To be respectful of that person, their time. No, and you know their- what? You make a valid point. And I will say too, I took that very serious. Like when I wrote those letters, I'm not I'm not gonna lie, yeah. I'd spend three days writing one letter. First of all, I did it for two reasons. One is kind of selfish. One is if there's a small chance they're gonna respond, I wanna get the most information I could. So how do I word yeah. this in, in the way where I'm asking the right questions to get the most valuable information from them? So that was very important to me, like finding the right questions. But then the other thing is, yes, I wanted to be respectful of their time. You know, and one one thing I did with that was I was doing a lot of research, reading trade magazines about coffee roasting this and that, and I would let them know, okay, I'm I'm learning about this thing. Here's what I know about it. I did a lot of research. Like I let them know I was putting in the work, but there's one part that yeah. I can't figure out or get access to information on. So I was like, I'm willing to do the work but I'm just wanting to reach out to you when there's something I can't get. So it's not going to be like all the time. I'm not going to be lazy and just come to you every time I don't want to do the work. I'm going to look for the answers. And if I can't find them, then I will reach out to you. And I still have those people. I'll be honest. There's several of them. We still stay in touch who are helping me now in the process. Yeah. No, it's awesome. The point being, I guess, is when you reach out for practicality, you will also find returning things that the the non-practical, the the just the joy of life and learning as a human aspect. No, I'm glad is, this topic came up too, because I actually was thinking about doing an episode about this, about reaching out, because running the label, people, you know, reach out to me. Someone reached out to me kind of recently and actually mentioned this on the first episode, but you know, they used to write me letters in the early mid two thousands. Nothing intense, nothing too personal or intimate. But they reached out to me now, ten some odd years later, saying I was going through a really difficult time back then, and I just want to thank you because you know you and your other bandit friends helped me. And he's like, he said, you know, I'm 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 married now. I got a wife. I got a dog. Like I'm, you know, life is is good. But he's like, I was struggling back then. And I was just thinking about, man, people should reach out more. I'm not saying reach out to me. Like I know I have everything. I'm just saying in no. general, people should Absolutely. reach out. And specifically, they should reach out to people that they feel are like slightly unreachable, mm-hmm. I think, right? Like, yeah. like reach out to the person who you think would not give you the time of day. Mm-hmm. You often find, I mean, I'm often just hearing about even just like that thing. I mean, we actually have a, fr- a mutual friend who's one of the best examples of 
Chesky. And anyone that I've ever been like, someone will be like, oh, your friend Chesky is really cool. Like, and I'll be like, you should write him a letter. And like, or like, you should send him an email. And every time they'll, they'll come back and they'll be like, <laughs> like, he's so tight, you know, like he's just connected with me. Like, it's easy to think that a person is so busy and overwhelmed, especially if they're dealing with something. It's like, if I'm like a musician who's just starting out and I want to reach out to some bigger musician, I'm just like, they would never, why would they give me the time of day? They think that I'm just trying to get some kind of in with them or something like that. All that fear half the time, these people are also wanting to have a human connection. It, I feel like reaching out, you should always do it. There's really no harm except for your ego when it gets rejected or when it doesn't pan out or whatever. It's basically the same outcome. You just aren't in touch. You're not in touch, but the outcome's a little different because you you practiced reaching out, right? So you're going to get better at reaching, whether they respond or not. And you can say, okay, well, maybe the way I reached out could have been done a little differently. So next time I'm going to reach out to this person this yeah. way. You know, like you, you can figure out how to... Sure. Uh, you know, so I don't. I wouldn't even say that. You know, you're actually gaining, even if they don't respond. You're gaining that that skill set of how how that do you open excellent. that communication? You mentioned this, and and quite a few people did that I know, or even people I didn't know, because I did these podcast interviews when I was dealing with my case. People would leave comments and whatnot. But you specifically you used the word how I approach things. I think you said gracefully more than once. Yeah. And other people were also like uh, very intrigued and amazed at the way I was approaching things. You know, I don't, I don't want to say it, maybe it wasn't graceful because I'm, you know what, this is a silly comparison, but it makes me think of a ballerina. They move in these such graceful right. ways. But then when you look at the practicing of that, like the pain that they go through to learn how to move their body, Definitely. that in itself yeah. is not graceful. But what right. comes out of that is displayed in a very graceful way. So. I can see that side of that, you know, the grace that's there. I think when people saw me in that challenging place, for me, it was I was facing incarceration. I was going to end up in prison. They intuitively got curious. And I don't mean this like in a callous way. Like obviously, people care about me. I know you care about me. But there's also this part of, of you and other people, people in general, who are saying, oh, that can happen to me. Mm. I, I could pay attention especially if this person's responding well. Oh, definitely. And, and, and then I'll gain some information that I can use when catastrophe strikes my life. Yes. To break it down a little more clearly, my thought is that there's basically four pillars, major pillars in everyone's life. You have your relationships, right? Your intimate relationships. You have your home. That's where you live. You know, you have your, your job, your income, and then you have your larger community. And for anybody, if one of those falls apart, it's a major setback. It's a major setback in life. Your relationship ends, uh, you get fired from your job. It's a major setback. If two of those pillars begin to collapse, I mean, that's a traumatic event if two of those pillars yeah. begin to collapse. And if three or God forbid all four collapse, like that's, that's game over. You're starting over right. from nothing, buddy. Like you, you yeah. lost and that's it. I, I literally ended up in that place with all four. I mean, I was being ripped away from all my loved ones. I was being ripped away from my community, my job, which was illegal, but I was selling marijuana and making lots of money. And like that was ripped away from me. And then the fourth, my home, which, you know, if you remember my home, like literally burned down during all yeah. this too. And for people to any of us to see somebody in that place, especially if they're responding well, it attracts our attention because we intuitively understand that we could be there too, right? And I, I, like I said, I don't uh, mean yes. prison, but we know we can be there too. So we want to understand what can we do when that catastrophe strikes us? Because it's going to. There's no way in life you can get through life without catastrophe, right? It, it's going to hit all of us. And I guess when you're facing a threat or a catastrophe, it generally shifts a person into fear, right? Into defensiveness in the beginning. And that's where I was in the beginning. When you're dealing with a threat, you retreat, you kind of shrink in on yourself. It doesn't feel like you want to be ultra creative and go exploring. You're not particularly open-minded. You're alert. You're kind of shrunk into yourself, looking around. like just. And, and that's what happened to me. I mean, I spent the first several weeks after my arrest, like 
in bed, shrunken in, like looking around, you know, I wasn't, my mind wasn't open to possibility. I thought my life was over. Like literally, I thought this was the end of everything. I didn't have the potential to be creative. I guess this gets back to then we talk about responsibility. I got to a point where I begin to ask myself the question, am I going to let these circumstances destroy me? Or am I going to respond to them in a way that empowers me and enlarges me and also does the same for those around me? And yeah. that was the point where I decided to like, you know, take responsibility in my journey. Um, and that was the point when I began to stabilize myself in the world, right? Because as we said, there's these four pillars and they all collapsed. And I was, it was a very unstable moment in my life. And I think that's what happened at that, that, that point when I decided to take that responsibility and to stabilize myself in the world again, because all those pillars that were the foundation of my life were all crumbling. Like everyone was like, oh my God, what's he going to do? How is he going to do this? To see me respond the way I did, I think provided information that intuitively we all want because we want to know how to deal with that catastrophe. I know I kind of long-winded explanation, but it seemed like that's what was happening. That's exactly it. And I think we're all programmed to think like, well, once the criminal gets caught, he has no voice. That's the point. You know, he's been caught and cleaned up and, you know, now he'll never be heard from him again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we're programmed to think that there's no voice inside that system, but there is. There are small ways like the video that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that even if that judge didn't change his opinion at all, just having that little bit of voice is infinitely better than having no voice at all. Whether or not that affected the judge's sentencing decision, I'll never know. But one thing I do know is for myself, for Lee, my fiance, for my kids, for you and my other friends, I can say, I did everything I could. You know, I can, yes. I can turn you on, honestly say I did everything I could, especially like as a father, like with my kids, you know, I can say, look, this situation sucks. No matter what you think about the cops or the government, I do have some responsibility in it. I'm sorry, but I am doing everything I can. And I can honestly say that. And I'm now looking back, I'm very grateful that I can say that because if I didn't do everything I could, like I, I just, I wouldn't be happy with the man that I am, you know, as a, as a father, especially. Totally. Yes. I can't stop coming back to the fact that it's a good example. Your kids know that like, that's like the way to deal with a situation. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, like there's this one core thing that's the same with most of it, or maybe all of it is that fear is what's standing in between you and having the voice. Oh, absolutely. It's fear. Yeah. More than the system. The system has reduced your voice as much as they can. Mm-hmm. But what's finally reducing you to no voice is fear. And in no way am I saying too, I did this, you know, uh, with ease. I didn't. I mean, it took a lot of energy and strength. And even when I got locked up, when I went in, my friend Pat created a website with a blog on it for me. Dude, I sat on my prison bunk for a year before I put pen to paper because I was afraid to write and share what I had to say. Like it took me a year to overcome that fear sitting in there just to write. I mean, I had the blog there, like I had the resource, you know, my friend was like, just write it, mail it to me and I'll put it up there every month. And I took me a year to do that. So I don't, I'm not trying to say that this is always easy or immediate. Quite the opposite. For me, when I hear you state it, I am certainly not taking it as like, and all you got to do is Mm -hmm. just like, you know, like a couple magic words. It's like, no, what, when you're saying it, the purpose, the tool that I get from you saying it is that when I am deep in the shit, when I am in the grueling fight for the voice, to remember that it works, to remember to keep going. So we moved around quite a bit. I do want to get back to a question about intuition. I'm curious, what are the benefits that you've experienced personally? I mean, for one thing, I think that the flow state of intuition when you are in it is a source of great joy, a source of great empowerment and joy. You feel like a conduit because again, what's responding in you, what's responding to those subtle stimuli and interacting in that way is sort of behind you or or under you. It's, It's this thing that's beyond you and coming through you. And when you become a conduit for it, 
there's this re- really beautiful feeling of being in place or like, or almost like knowing the future. It's like you, you're aware of what's going to happen before it happens. Like you're being guided. Like all of a sudden you're just like floating down this river and it's all happening and it's all happening beautifully and perfectly, but you didn't plan it. Whoa. Oh, it's this feeling of like you're reading it and writing it at the same time. You're, you're doing this simultaneously and it's a feeling of discovery and a feeling of simultaneous safety and excitement. Like one of the ways that I was going to reference to like what I'm talking about with um, intuition is like, there's this blockage of the small voice that knows exactly what is happening. There is a basically a constant covering up of it or um, everything is too loud and you can't hear it. And it's the removal of the blocks, not some increase of intuitive ability that lands you in the intuitive space. And one really good example is just like, if you take psychedelics and you're good at playing music and you're good at playing an instrument, you can find yourself in this really immense flow state, very powerful feeling, like what I was just describing, but sort of to the oomph, like very, very powerful. But if you couldn't play the guitar at all, and you were given a couple of tabs of acid and asked to play the guitar, it would not be a good scene for you and your mind. You have to have the ability to be the conduit. It helps to have a practice of memorization and pattern and ability. But if you can get away from the analytical, away from the second guesser, the second guesser is the ultimate enemy of the intuition. Uh, are you sure? It's like if you act with assurance, and move forward, you'll find obstacles are being removed. You will find that the, the path is being opened for you to continue to act in this intuitive way. But you have to kind of know how to operate a little bit to begin with. It's not just a thing that is like a, a gift granted, just like full on 100% gift. You're just like granted this power or something. It's a preparedness and then a response. It's also like this. It basically, it has enormous uh, benefits in any situation that I'm trying to get something done uh, effectively because intuition is the part, like in the art of war, they say that you got to have a good plan to go in. You can't go in without a plan, but the plan will always change. Like on the ground, you need to be intuitive and responsive to the situation or else you're not going to do well. Intuition is the response to subtle things that we don't even really acknowledge on the whole that we're responding to. And in fact, even when you're in the intuitive state, you don't really know what it is that is stimulating and causing that. So I, I want to ask you, because we had we had some serious discussion for a while now, and I can certainly use some more fun in my life, especially after these past few years and everything I've been through. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, what do you do for fun, Burnham? What do I do for fun? I like to go into nature a lot. Uh, I like to take walks in the woods. Uh, I like to, th- I mean, I think most artists are like this where, I mean, for me, some of the most fun I have is just in my creative art, um, either contemplating new ways to uh, engineer right now it's engineering, um, experiences, you know, figuring out how to use these different, uh, solenoids and the physical objects and how to set them up, planning a set, uh, and just playing, being with, um, my, my system of machines to generate music is a lot of fun. Uh, lately doing shows is also a lot of fun for me playing shows. And right now what I've been doing for extra curricular type fun, more like like art, I like to do drawing on this program called po- Procreate, which I brought that into my art life through the Zinzerna. So most of most of what I do, I just am like having fun doing my work. Actually, now that you mention it, huh? Most of my most of my fun revolves around work. I don't know if that's entirely healthy, but right now what. I don't know if you could consider it fun, but I'm quite, I have a a new partner in my life that has been like absolutely 
causing great joy. I guess talking to people. I guess talking to people would be mm-hmm. a big one of what I like to do for fun. Oh, the one recreational sort of considered recreational is motorcycling that I mm-hmm. truly like love. But um, that's pretty much it. Most of my life is spent making music with either myself or people and then planning on how to make that into something that's cool for other people to observe. <laughs> nice. I, I like that because it it seems like a lot of the stuff you mentioned comes back to play, mm. right? Uh, just playing with, you know, the stuff that you use to create music to, you said, playing a show. The idea of play, I like that. And then yeah. relationship. Play and relationship are, are both, especially when you can combine them both. Uh, recently, yes. my partner and I went to a ska show. And I have not danced in like such a long time, but we were dancing at the ska show. And it wow. was just so much fun. It was just so much fun to like, you know, let go and dance. And we yes. were dancing with our friends. And it was just, that was a lot of fun. But one thing I can say uh, before we close out, bringing play into my relationship has Mm. like really been profound. And what I mean is I don't just simply mean going out and and dancing at a scotch or having like, you know, that type of play, but uh, the ability to play and poke fun at the annoying things my partner does and her to be able Mm. to play and poke fun at the annoying things I do. And we poke fun at our own annoying stuff. Like if you could do that in a playful way, as opposed to the aggravated way, Right. It's been like, you know, just for me to acknowledge like, oh, yes, I'm doing that annoying thing that annoys you again. And it's like we can poke fun at it and laugh about it, you know, because as well, my partner knows she does the annoying things that annoy me. But we tease each other about it. And uh, when you can have that level of play, it's like when I'm doing that dumb, annoying thing or my beard here is all over the the sink in the bathroom, like like she can laugh and joke about it, especially honestly, since I went to prison, like. She's like, man, I wish your beard here was back home in the, in the sink again, you know? Right. So right. It's so nice to be able to play and laugh. Like, we're just people trying to figure this out. Like, we don't have to get aggravated with each other. And, of course, we do get aggravated. But when we do, we come back to that play. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and there's this, like, like, it's not about not taking it seriously. It's about understanding that it doesn't need to be that serious taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you can take things seriously and, you know, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that you're someone who, who like just thinks like life is a whim or something like mm-hmm. this. But when we can look at our own thing and, and be like, it's not so dire, it's not the end of the world that I am, mm-hmm. uh, that I like was messy in the bathroom. Like, it's not mm-hmm. the end of the world. Like, <laughs> and it's to acknowledge it is also like to acknowledge it safely and in a way that doesn't make you feel awful, um, you know, or like make you feel like, you know, it's terrible. This is the root the route to real understanding and acknowledgement and maybe even shifting, you know, of behaviors. Yes. Cause if you can transform your frustration or your arguments, they're going to happen. And I always say like, I used to have this idea that, you know, a good relationship or a healthy relationship, there's no fights or arguments and that's mm-hmm. completely wrong. A good relationship or a healthy relationship knows how to come back together after the fight or the argument right? Because it, they're going to happen, you know, and we're not having like yelling matches, but we have disagreements and we have these things that we, we, you know, we will argue over, but we learn to look at our own selves and our behavior in those moments. And the next day we're like able to kind of poke at them and laugh at them. And then we can, you know, we're giggling together and holding each other over how silly we were in those yeah. moments. And, and we're, we're and coming back together is, after a fight is more important than having a relationship without fights. I mean, I mean, it's a classic argument, but I would definitely invoke the classic argument that if you're not fighting, if you don't have any arguments, you're both not being, there's something not being shared. Mm -hmm. There's something not being acknowledged because it just isn't like the way that it is. Even the, the most kindest and most reasonable and most, you know, of people, you've got to get in some arguments. It just is like if you both have opinions on things, it would be insane if you were just like everything is cool. Like everything is always. I'm not one of those people that's like you got to have a screaming match every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like no, 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 yeah. no, that stuff that stuff disturbs me and makes me so anxious, and I don't like it. But 
to be like, oh no, nothing's wrong. Everything is, you're, you're just an, a perfect angel that never annoys me. Like, this is like, um, actually I feel like me and me and my partner were just talking about this, that it's like saying that being like, you're just perfect. And nothing is like, that's actually putting a lot of stress on the other mm -hmm. person to be like flawless and to be like, oh, non, you know, non abrasive. It's like, to me, abrasive people are often the most interesting. I know that uh, my partner can be abrasive. I can be abrasive. And like you say, learning to like come back and like talk about it and laugh about it. If you can laugh about it, that means you can talk about it. And that means you can talk about it freely. You can't laugh and be angry at the same time. No. If you can come yeah. back and laugh, like, you know, you, you can end up in a really good place. I mean, I think that's been one of the keys to the success that we've had with our relationship. You know, we've been in relationship for almost 15 years. It's probably something I learned in the last five years or so, like how to come back together after a, a disagreement. And that's been invaluable because I used to be scared of disagreements and now they don't scare me. They're healthy. Definitely. That's and, so good to hear. Yeah, no, I'm happy. And then look, you come back together and then you can play and you can dance. <laughs> Have some Definitely. fun. Exactly. And whatever whatever was causing the tension is now worked out so the fun can be had. You can mm -hmm. deny the tension, but then the fun is always being had on this knife edge. You got to get it out into the open. You, to, on a personal level, I'm like currently over the moon because I'm with one of the first, I think the first partner that I feel like I can be extraordinary like the other day like she said something that made me feel really insecure she didn't mean it that way but it made mm -hmm. me feel really insecure and i knew that it was a kind of dumb to feel insecure too and so i was like well don't tell her that you felt that way that's just stupid and she'll think that's dumb and like you know so it's like okay but and then just being able to be like so i know you didn't mean it that way but what you said me because because i'm really admitting a weakness on my point i'm not really yeah. even saying you did this thing and it's bad. It's like, ugh, I'm so sensitive that that thing that you said made me feel like you were saying that I didn't have any resilience and I know that you do. But I... And then she was like, ah, I'm glad that I know that you felt that way. Like being able to acknowledge and being able to laugh about it makes those moments so much more possible, mm -hmm. you know, because you know that it's not going to be like this thing where it's like, where it's like, oh, so dire. It lets you explore those things and be free to be like your flawed, awful self, you know, in some some ways. And like, that's freedom. That's freedom inside of like of a partner is uh, being able to communicate that stuff. And laughter is, they say it's the best medicine, but cliches are totally true. It's, mm -hmm. it, is, it is what allows you to see your own ridiculousness, not take yourself so seriously. And then everything's not so dire. Also, I think it's a way to see yourself as like being funny and goofy or like not so serious is also being not so solid. It allows for mm -hmm. more change. You know, if everything's so dire, rigid and straight, if, if things are a little goofy and loose, like there's room for shifting and changing. Glad that you're there. Yeah, no, I am too. It's funny. It's, I think it's an ongoing process. So it's never like you reach this place where it's done completely because, you know, no. I'll tell you, we've been together man, probably almost 15 years now, close to it. And um, this year we we had this like, you could call it, it, I don't know if it was an argument. It was just like, I think it came to light that when, when Lee, my fiance says, I want to go to bed, I thought, okay, we're going to go and go to sleep for 10 years. Right. That's what I thought she meant. <laughs> for her, it was, well, no, I want to like lay in the bed and have some tea, maybe stay up for a little bit, maybe talk, maybe watch something, whatever. And for, for 15 years, we were going to bed and it was like not what each of us was thinking was going to happen. And yeah. so like neither of us was getting what we were expecting, but I have to laugh at it. Like I've been with uh -huh. her for 15 years and I didn't know what she meant when she said, I want to go to bed now. Like it took yeah. me 15 years to understand what that meant. And so we had to get like, it was funny. We got my youngest involved and we were like talking about like, huh, well, what is, what does it mean to you when someone says, I want to go to bed? You know, and like, does it mean you just go to sleep? Or does it mean you, you know, you hang out and talk and have tea? But it was just funny that it took us 15 years to figure out what the other means when they say, I want to go to bed. So I think there's always something to be learning in relationship. You know? Absolutely. And I think often, it's the trickiest stuff is the stuff that you don't think to ask because mm -hmm. you've made an assumption of what going to bed means. 
and mm-hmm. an assumption that it means the same to the other person. It's a lot of times those obvious ones, the ones that's like, well, how could it mean anything but what yeah. that is? And they might seem simple, but it's like, well, going to bed is something you do together every night. Yes. For 15 years. So you better like, it makes sense to figure out how to do that in the best way possible. Like the little things add up that make the most, you know, often. Totally. Well, Burnham, we've definitely had a wide ranging conversation. I appreciate it. it. Yeah. I I appreciate you taking this time. We, we talked for quite a while. I'm not sure how much of this will, will get on, on air. We're just two friends talking, whether, you know, making something that's really compelling for somebody else to sit in and listen to. I'm sure you're going to do great with finding the best (laughs) stuff. For those who are listening, like we've talked for at least almost three hours now, but um, yeah, I really appreciate. We won't subject this time. to everything. <laughs> well, uh, we're gonna link your contacts and everything in the show notes. Cool. Do you have any anything you'd like to close out with? You know, a lot of times that stuff is really trite, and you know, trying to sum up everything. But straight up, it really is like lean into fear, lean into anxiety. Anxiety is coming at you to try and try and tell you what you need to do. It's, it's, it's running from the direction that you need to move in. You can use it as an indicator. Lean into anxiety, lean into fear, and that's... What does it mean to be a good friend? What does it mean to be a good partner? What does it mean to be a good father or mother? These are things that really interest me especially over the last six years. This concept of relationship has really piqued my interest because I had to face some of the most difficult challenges I ever experienced in my entire life. And I wouldn't have made it through them the way I did without the relationships that I had. People showed up for me in ways that I never thought was possible. And I, you know, I have to admit, I caused a lot of hurt and damage and pain to a lot of people. Though it wasn't intentional, the fact remains, it happened. So what does it mean for me to show up and take responsibility for that? If I want to maintain those relationships and get them back to a healthy place, what does that look like? You know, I'm glad that Burnham and I got to discuss relationships at the end of our conversation. This is something I want to discuss much further in future episodes because relationships are invaluable to everyone because there's going to be a point in your life where you're going to have to stand up and face a catastrophe if you haven't already and the relationships you have will really make a difference in how you get through it and on that note i would like to just give a shout out to folk punk dad for his friendship him and i are actually pretty new friends you're kind of hearing our friendship uh develop and unfold on this podcast But in this episode specifically, I recorded it. It was over three hours, like I said, and I handed it off to him. I said, you know, here you go. Edit what you could. I did a little bit of helping, and we got it down to two hours and 40 minutes. But then the rest was in his hands. And it was Mother's Day weekend. I know him and his wife were driving out of state to spend that time with family. And his wife was driving the car. And he was there with headphones on, laptop open, in the car, editing away. So I thank you, Will, for that. And I hope everyone listening can appreciate the time and efforts that we're putting into this. And we're doing our best. This is our first time having a podcast, so we're not going to be perfect. But we're going to get better as we go on. And you're going to hear more from Folk Punk Dad for sure in the future. Uh, As I said, I started this podcast before I ever reached out to him. And I started planning and scheduling a lot of these interviews before I realized how overwhelmed I was and how much I needed some support and help. And so some of those are going to play out. And as time goes on, he's going to have more and more of a role on here. In our next episode, actually, he's going to share quite a bit about intuition and his experiences with it. And he kind of helps me understand and become more comfortable with that word. Even understanding how it played a role in the formation of the DIY bandits that I created years ago. So enjoy the upcoming episodes. And if you have any questions, please reach out to us at podcast at backonthegrindrecords.com.
there is a thing And in the thing there is a mind And in the mind there is a spring And in the spring it rains down To the ripples of the pond Traveling down through the river To the oceans and beyond Hey ah, hey ah. Lost their way in the world. 